Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! We obtained more than 150 pages of internal COP28 documents that reveal that the UAE, as host of the major UN climate summit, planned to use the event as an opportunity to lobby on oil and gas deals with foreign nations. As the United Nations prepares to hold its largest climate summer ever in the United Arab Emirates, leaked documents show the UAE plans to use COP28, the summit, to make new oil and gas deals. We'll speak to the reporter who broke the story. Then we look at the crisis in Sudan as Human Rights Watch documents new mass ethnic killings in Darfur as fighting continues between rival military factions. And we'll remember former First Lady Rosalind Carter, wife of President Jimmy Carter. A memorial service was held on Tuesday in Georgia. And again, a special thank you Secretary Clinton, Mrs. Bush, Mrs. Obama, Mrs. Trump, and Dr. Biden. Thank you all for coming and acknowledging this remarkable sisterhood that you share with my grandmother. And thank you all for your leadership that you provided for our country and the world. Secretary Clinton and Dr. Biden, we also welcome your lovely husbands. We'll look at Rosalind Carter's decades-long advocacy for mental health care. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Talks are ongoing to further extend the truce in Gaza as the temporary ceasefire enters its final day. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke at a NATO news conference in Brussels earlier today as he prepares to head back to Israel and the West Bank. We'll be focused on making, uh, doing what we can to extend the pause so that we continue to get more hostages out and more humanitarian assistance in. On Tuesday, 30 Palestinian women and children were freed from Israeli prisons after 10 Israelis and two foreign nationals were released from Gaza. This is Palestinian activist and student Ruba Asi, who was freed yesterday. This joy is filled with pain and sacrifice, but also with a short victory. This feeling cannot be explained or put into words. We hope that all prisoners go through these moments and our heroic people will greet them. We hope this truce will be extended to a permanent ceasefire, and we wish freedom to our heroic people. Israeli media says renowned Palestinian activist Ahed Tamimi, who was arrested earlier this month, could be released in an upcoming captive swap. Meanwhile, Palestinian prisoner associations say over the first four days of prisoner exchanges, Israel arrested 133 Palestinians, nearly as many as the 150 they released. Among the remaining hostages in Gaza is a 10-month-old baby and two American women. Some Gazans have returned to their abandoned homes as they grapple with the utter destruction left by the Israeli assault. 
A Palestinian mother said she was using rubble from her leveled home to make fire to cook over. Aid groups, including the World Food Program, are warning Gaza remains at risk of an even worse humanitarian crisis and that more assistance is urgently needed. Our team saw hunger, desperation and destruction. People who have not received any relief in weeks. Hundreds of thousands that are facing an immediate risk of starvation. WFP hopes for the extension of this pause, which offered the window of relief that could pave the way for a longer term calm. Safe and impeded humanitarian access cannot stop now. An estimated 15,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces have surrounded three hospitals and are blocking medical teams as they conduct a major raid in the Janine refugee camp. The head of Doctors Without Borders, Christos Christou, posted this video last night while trapped with staff at the Khalil Suleiman Hospital. It's been already two and a half hours that we are trapped in our hospital here in Jenin, while the Israeli forces are operating in another incursion in Jenin camp. There is no way for any of the injured patients uh, to reach the hospital, and there's no way for us to reach these people. Christus said at least two Palestinians died of their wounds while ambulances could not reach them during the siege. This comes amidst reports a nine-year-old Palestinian boy was shot by Israeli soldiers in Jenin this morning. The IDF has also destroyed at least two homes in Jenin, as well as roads and water mains, and rounded up at least 20 people. Rights groups say Israel's arrested 35 Palestinians throughout the occupied West Bank within the last 24 hours, including a 12-year-old child. Hisham Awartini, one of the three Palestinian college students shot in a likely hate crime in Burlington, Vermont, has released a statement from the hospital. Awartani, a Brown University student, said, quote, It's important to realize that this is part of the larger story. I'm but one casualty in the much wider conflict. Had I been shot in the West Bank where I grew up, the medical services that saved my life would likely have been withheld by the Israeli army, he said. On Monday evening, Brown students interrupted a talk by the university president, Christine Paxson, at a vigil for the shot students, calling for the school to divest from weapons manufacturers, including Northrop Grumman, Raytheon and Textron. At the Ramallah Friends School in the occupied West Bank, which was attended by all three shooting victims, students and staff reflected on the tragic attack. This is Lean Al-Shahab, a senior at Friends. As Ramallah Friends School students, we're horrified by the recent attack that targeted three of our beloved Ramallah Friends School alumni and friend, friends. Um, as Ramallah Friends School students, we call upon international communities to conduct a full and thorough investigation on this attack. And we call upon for this attack to not be dismissed or... Um, um, ignored by any means. Uh, today, as students, we're wearing the hatta as a symbol of, or the kofiya as a symbol of uh, solidarity with our friends and for their families as well. To see our interview with the head of the Ramallah Friends School, now General Secretary of the American Friends Service Committee here in the United States, Joyce Aljuni, go to democracynow.org.
On Tuesday, Vermont Democratic Senator Peter Welch called for an indefinite extension to the ceasefire in Gaza. Welch's fellow senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, has yet to call for a permanent ceasefire. The Charles Koch Super PAC Americans for Prosperity Action has endorsed Nikki Haley for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Charles Koch and his network of right-wing billionaires is aiming to weaken frontrunner Donald Trump by throwing tens of millions of dollars and thousands of volunteers across the U.S. behind Haley's campaign. Among other things, the super PAC is known for blocking efforts to fight the climate crisis. The Texas Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in the lawsuit challenging the state's near-total abortion ban. Patients have been refused care despite serious complications and forced to carry non-viable pregnancies to term, often at great personal risk. This is Molly Duane, a senior attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights, which brought the case on behalf of 22 patients and doctors. The last two years are an aberration from a centuries-long practice in Texas that allowed physicians broad discretion to provide abortion when necessary to preserve their patients' lives. The abortion bans as they exist today subject physicians like my clients to the most extreme penalties imaginable, life in prison and loss of their medical license. And while there is technically a medical exception to the bans, no one knows what it means and the state won't tell us. Panama's president said Tuesday a contested foreign-owned open-pit copper mine that's been at the center of recent nationwide protests would be shut down. The announcement came just hours after the Panamanian Supreme Court ruled a 20-year contract approved by Panama's government with the mine earlier this year unconstitutional. Protesters had said the new contract for the Cobre Panama mine, which is owned by Canada's first quantum minerals, was fast tracked with little public input or transparency. Mining is another expression of the rising corruption in the country. I think this sentence is a hard blow to corruption and a clear message to future governors of the country that we will not allow more impositions and corruption that restrict the sovereignty of the Panamanian people. The copper mine is the largest in Central America. In a major victory for indigenous rights, an Ecuadorian appeals court has sided with the Sicopi Nation to regain ownership of their ancestral homeland in the Amazon rainforest. The Sicopi people were forced out of their territory, called Pequeya, over 80 years ago during the Peru-Ecuador War in the 1940s. This ruling will mark the first time the Ecuadorian government grants a land title to an indigenous community whose ancestral land is now a protected area. The Sicopi are on the brink of extinction, with a population of only 800 in Ecuador and 1,200 in Peru. In a statement, Sicopi Nation President Elias Piauaje said, quote, We are fighting for the preservation of our culture on this planet. Without this territory, we cannot exist as Sikopai people. Today is a great day for our nation. Until the end of time, this land will be ours, he said. 
In the Philippines, the government of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and the New People's Army, the military wing of the Communist Party of the Philippines, will revive peace talks for the first time in six years, facilitated by Norway. The negotiations were abruptly halted in 2017 by then-President Rodrigo Duterte. If successful, the NPA will end their half-century-long armed struggle and become a recognized political movement. This is Carlito Galvez, a former defense official, now presidential advisor. Socioeconomic and environmental issues and the foreign security threats facing the country, the parties recognize the need to unite as a nation in order to urgently address these challenges and resolve the reasons of the armed conflict. Last week, President Marcos Jr. issued an order granting amnesty to a number of rebel groups, including former members of the MPA and Communist Party. In Sierra Leone, 13 military officers and one civilian have been arrested after an alleged failed coup that left at least 20 people dead. Heavy gunfire broke out in the capital Freetown Sunday as attackers targeted Sierra Leone's major military barracks near the presidential villa and two prisons where some 2,000 people were able to escape. Sierra Leone officials said the attacks were an attempt to overthrow the elected government. This is a resident of Freetown. We are praying for this not to repeat, because this country belongs to all of us. If this continues, where are we supposed to go? Because we will not have this kind of peace in another man's country. This comes just a few months after Sierra Leone's president, Julius Mada Bio, was re-elected for a second term in a disputed June election. At least eight other military coups have taken place in West and Central Africa since 2020, including Gabon and Niger this year. And in Atlanta, Georgia, President Biden and Jill Biden, Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton joined other current and former leaders to pay tribute to Rosalind Carter at her memorial service. All living first ladies were there. 99-year-old Jimmy Carter, who is now in home hospice care since last February, was also in attendance. Rosalind Carter was active throughout her husband's political career, acting as advisor and strategist. She's also remembered as an advocate for mental health care and unpaid home caregivers. This is her son, James Earl Chip Carter III. Mom was always well informed on the issues of the day in the White House. Mom asked Ed so many questions that he finally said that she should attend cabinet meetings. So she did and caught a lot of flack for that. We'll have more on Rosalind Carter and her mental health advocacy both as an advocate and an inpatient, later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Dubai which is hosting the United Nations Climate Summit, known as COP28, Conference of Parties, that starts Thursday after a year that's likely to be the hottest ever recorded. This is expected to be the largest summit yet, with some 70,000 delegates and world leaders and senior officials from nearly every country coming to the United Arab Emirates. President Biden's attended the last two COP summits, and just this month, he called climate change the ultimate threat to humanity. But it has recently been announced he won't be attending this year. 
Pope Francis was set to be the first head of the Catholic Church to attend, but will instead join remotely due to health concerns. Doctors say he has the flu. Hundreds of Catholic institutions worldwide, but none in the United States, the world's top oil and gas producer, have announced plans to divest from oil, gas and coal since the Pope called for a break with fossil fuels in 2015. The president of this year's climate summit is also head of the UAE oil giant Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOC. Sultan Al-Jaber is the first CEO to be a COP president. We in the United Arab Emirates take uh, this task of hosting uh, COP28 with humility, uh, with a deep sense of responsibility, and we also understand and fully appreciate how urgent this matter is. It has become a top priority uh, for our leadership. I uh, want everyone to know that we have the full political will to support a successful uh, COP28. But leaked briefing documents obtained by the Center for Climate Reporting reveal how the COP28 president and CEO planned to use his role in order to strike oil and gas deals with 15 countries. For China, the document showed Adnok said it's, quote, willing to jointly evaluate international LNG, that's liquefied natural gas, opportunities in Mozambique, Canada and Australia. Documents also outline plans to tell Colombia that Adnok, quote, stands ready to help develop its oil and gas reserves. For more, we're joined by Ben Stockton, investigative reporter at the Center for Climate Reporting, where his new expose is headlined, COP28 President Secretly Use Climate Summit Rule to Push Oil Trade with Foreign Government Officials, with a related piece inside the campaign that put an oil boss in charge of a climate summit. Ben, this is great reporting. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, why don't you start off by talking about how the head of one of the largest oil companies in the world has become head of the U.N. Climate Summit, the largest one ever held. Democracy Now! will be there all next week in UAE covering this climate summit. How did this all take place? And then talk about the leaked documents. Sure. So I think uh, what's really at the heart of this latest controversy goes back to the beginning of this year, um, which is when the UAE chose um, Sultan al-Jabba to be COP president. Um, and, and like you say, he is not only um, the president of, of this year's UN Climate Summit, um, but he is also the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He is a man who um, is actually very interesting. He's someone who wears many hats. Um, not only is he COP president and ADNOC CEO, he is also chairman of a, a UAE state-owned renewable energy company called Mastar. Um, and he is also a UAE cabinet minister. So he really has many, many roles that he fulfills uh, alongside his climate envoy role, which is why he is um, you know, currently serving as COP28 president. And I think what, what really 
um, led to to this position and, and what we um, looked at in our piece with the intercept was was really um, how we um, got to the point where um, not only a CEO but a CEO of a fossil fuel company um, became COP president. Um, you know, he is someone who, over the past 15 years, has really worked to push his um, international image and his green credentials. Uh, he has uh, worked with major PR agencies to to help shape that image. Um, perhaps no more important than um, the American PR firm Edelman, who, who has worked with Al Jaber since the mid-2000s and, and continues to work uh, today on, on COP28. So it has really been um, a long-term, um, meticulous, really, campaign um, that, has, that has led us to this point. Um, and the point that we arrive at today is, is uh, with these uh, latest um, revelations that, that we worked on, um, we obtained uh, more than 150 pages of uh, internal COP28 documents. Um, and they are briefings that are prepared for Al Jaba ahead of bilateral meetings with foreign governments. Um, and I think the, the remarkable thing about these documents is, is that many of them uh, include talking points um, that have been obtained from um, Adnoc and Mastar, the two companies that Al Jaba is involved in running. Um, and we've obviously seen these revelations really spark a controversy um, uh, and many, many news outlets have, have picked up on this story. Um, we worked on this initial story um, alongside reporters from the BBC um, uh, and we've seen uh, yeah, this piece just, just really spread around the world. And Ben, in terms of some of the most uh, shocking aspects of the, these communications with some of the major, major countries uh, in the world that are producing fossil fuels, could you talk about what most surprised you? Yeah, I think that um, the, those examples that Amy picked out about China uh, and about uh, Venezuela were, were particularly interesting, and, and that's something we, we picked out in our reporting. A, a number of the documents um, mention the uh, value of the sales and trading that ADNOC does with these countries. This can you know, stretch into the hundred of, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. Um, and like Amy said, that there's, there's mention of strategic partnerships, of um, potential opportunities for, for further international fossil fuel projects, um, as well as those Chinese and, and Venezuelan briefing documents. We, we also saw a document um, for a uh, briefing uh, for a meeting with the Brazilian government. And, and, and what that showed is, is that it appears that, the, um, that Al Jaba planned to ask about um, a deal that was ongoing where Adnoc had actually made a bid for a Brazilian petrochemicals company called Braschem. Um, so, so the specifics of these documents, I think, is, is, is what is really interesting. It does get into some kind of quite minute detail um, in, in terms of the, the business interests of, of Adnoc and Mastar in, in various countries around the world. And can you talk about the involvement of advisors like uh, Mohammed Al-Kabi and Oliver Phillips in, in COP28 and their ties to the uh, National Oil Company? Sure. So um, Al Jaba has quite a large team around him. Um, and some of those people um, appear to be people who he has worked with um, across the course of his, his career. Um, what we've been told previously by the by the COP28 team is is that staff from 
um, staff for COP28 are, are independent. Um, but actually, when we, we started asking about um, one particular individual, uh, uh, Mohammed Al-Kabi, as you mentioned, uh, he is uh, registered as the Director of Government Affairs for COP28. Um, but some of the internal records that we'd seen uh, seem to suggest that, that he had some ongoing role at, at ADNOC. Um, which, which we thought was, was very interesting, uh, given those, those previous statements that, that the COP28 team had given us. So when we went back to them asking questions about Al-Kabi, uh, they actually told us that um, he was somebody who worked across um, Al-Jabba's entire portfolio. And, and like I said before, Al-Jabba is someone who, who has many different roles uh, and, and seems to at least raise questions about the independence of the, of the COP28 team from other, other um, entities in the UAE, particularly the oil company. Uh, Oliver Phillips is another man that, that we've written about before. Um, he has played um, a key role in steering the PR efforts around COP28. Um, uh, and he also, uh, at least previously, had a role at, at the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Uh, w- when we approached COP28 for comment on on Phillips um, some time ago, now for that for that intercept piece, they, they told us that he was he was now working full time um, on the conference, uh, but they didn't tell us um, when that uh, employment with the oil company ended and, and when his employment with with the COP28 team started. Uh, our evidence, at least, would suggest that there was at least some crossover between his role at Adnoc and, and his role on. On the uh, COP28 team. Then, um, just before we went to broadcast, we saw a press release that said Al Jaber had stepped down as head of the COP, not head of the um, uh, Abu Dhabi uh, Oil Corporation. And then there was a news conference, actually. Um, but it turns out this is all fake. That's right. So I, th- I think there has actually been um, quite a bit of misinformation around this conference. Um, it, it's something that um, some uh, other outlets have, have written about quite extensively. Um, there, there was an instance earlier this year where the UAE was accused of um, essentially using fake Twitter bots um, online to to defend um, Sultan Al Jaba and the COP twenty and its role as as host of COP twenty eight. I've also kind of looked a little bit at um, some of the movements online uh, to boycott COP28, which, which seem to be associated with, with some fake Twitter profiles. So, so there really is quite a lot of uh, misinformation around COP. Um, and this uh, latest uh, press release that, that I've heard about going around this morning um, certainly seems to be part of that, that misinformation campaign. And just to be clear, um, uh, this fake news, uh, this fake press release said he had stepped down as head of uh, ADNOC, but would still head the cop. But again, this apparently is fake. I also wanted to uh, turn to what you reported in September on the United Arab Emirates plans to counter and minimize criticism of the UAE's human rights abuses at COP28. This is a clip of leaked audio you obtained from an exploratory meeting between senior UAE officials and the country's COP28 team. We hear the COP's head of communications, Skonaid Magichan. Came up with Qatar with the with the World Cup, and you know we need to look at we they, they will use this opportunity. Yeah, to, 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 to the UAE, and, and at the end of the day, 
we're you know hosting the COP28 and we're acting on behalf of the presidency, but we need to preserve the reputation of the UAE um, and uh, to look at how can we protect that and enhance the reputation and to try and minimise those attacks as much as possible. Ben Stockton, can you talk about the significance of this? I think it, it points to some of the accusations that um, the UAE is using COP28 as a as a, a chance to kind of boost its international uh, reputation and, and improve, particularly um, its president uh, Sultan Al Jaber's or the COP president Sultan Al Jaber's um, international standing. Um, like you said, we we obtained uh, this recording between uh, of a conversation between COP28 staff and, and senior UAE government officials, um, and and what that recording showed was was basically the the. UAE attempting to deflect or, or, or at least setting plans to, to deflect criticism um, of its human rights record, which we know the, the spotlight will be on um, during this conference. Uh, a number of the human rights groups have, have spoken out about um, you know, political prisoners in the UAE and, and um, a record uh, of human rights abuses in the country. Uh, and I think it, it, it really talks to, uh, this recording really really talks to, to the issue of, of how uh, the country might look to actually just not engage on those issues at all over, over the next couple of weeks, um, much to uh, the annoyance, of, uh, I'm sure, of the human rights groups who, who will be watching. And Ben, how do these revelations affect the credibility of the entire COP process? And what's been the re the response of uh, uh, experts and UN figures like Antonio Guterres? Yeah, I think um, it, it's been uh, a reaction of, of astonishment. Really, we, we've heard from a number of uh, senior people who who have who have said that. Uh, obviously, these re revelations um, do uh, call into question the the integrity of, of COP28. Um, uh, we, we've also heard from uh, former Vice President Al Gore, who who has been someone who uh, has raised concerns about about the conflicts of interest surrounding the COP presidency with Sultan Al Jaber's role as both COP president and CEO of an oil company. Uh, and he, he described these revelations as as really the realization of of some of those conflict of interest concerns that that had been raised, you know, back in January when when Al Jaber was first announced as COP president. Um, finally, Ben, are you going to be going and are you concerned about reporters who are there? I mean, there are going to be 70,000 people there, uh, but who uh, step into these forbidden realms of questioning. Uh, I, I'm not going to be uh, attending. I'll be, I'll be staying in uh, New York during the course of, of COP28. Um, like you, you mentioned, there are uh, various concerns about digital surveillance um, uh, and kind of invasive practices, media freedom, particularly. Um, from from what I've I've seen so far at COP, it, it does seem that the reporters are absolutely free to ask questions. There has been questions about uh, our revelations earlier this week. Um, but like I said, um, I'm, I'm planning to stay uh, here in New York for, for the duration of COP. Ben Stockton, investigative reporter at the Center for Climate Reporting. We'll link to your expose. COP28 presidents secretly use climate summit role to push oil trade with foreign government officials and your other pieces. And Democracy Now! will be there all next week in the United Arab Emirates, covering the largest U.N. climate summit ever. Stay tuned.
Coming up, we look at the crisis in Sudan as Human Rights Watch documents new mass ethnic killings in Darfur as fighting continues between rival military factions. Stay with us. Emergency on planet Earth, I tell you how I feel. When your family displaced and your countrymen are killed. Bombs on Ramadan, I swear my mama crying still. You should stress about a bill, not stress about my trying to get them out the field with the bullets flying indiscriminate. And the world turn a blind eye and consider it. Cause I'll say he got a ride. It costs 500 plus a little something on the side if you want to make the cut. Off, gotta grease the middleman. Five days trekking through the desert, cause I swore his misery. Auntie made it three days before she passed. He spoke it through his tears to me. He's crossing into Egypt now, but it don't get no easier. Why nobody care why they don't put us on the media? And I don't got the answers, feel like swear today. I see Ukraine, I see two things that ain't the same, and yet they are. You change your name, change your face, I still feel the pain. Why I'm getting punished for my melon entertainment. Apologize for what I got the right to be upset. I think the world should be ashamed. I hope the world will make a change. I hope it starts soon. I'm all by no distress. I just wanna do my best. I no get time to impress. If you won't fight, oh stay blessed. Oh 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 oh, focus on my race. May nobody question my pace. I wanna be in my space. May nobody give me migraine. Oh oh. Thousands killed. Over 5 million displaced and many more trapped in Khartoum and cities across Sudan with little access to basic necessities. This war is a battle for power. The country's army said it would only last a few days, but it's now been raging for months. Khartoum by Sudanese-American rapper Bas. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. We turn now to Sudan, where fighting between rival military factions continues to tear apart the country. Since April, the fighting has killed over 12,000 people, left over 6 million people displaced. Earlier this month, human rights groups say members of the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary group carried out a massacre of around 1,300 Masalit people over three days in Sudan's West Darfur region. Survivors of the massacre say RSF fighters went house to house looking for men to kill. They see a black person, they call him a fighter and kill him. If a black person is just walking, they kill him. There are people who hid inside their houses in fear, so they broke in with weapons and killed everyone. Some people tried to flee. They were caught, tied, taken out to the street, killed and left their dead. These are all civilians and not fighters dressed in khaki. Even the women and young unmarried girls were killed. I saw them. I just came from Ardamata yesterday. On Tuesday, a top Sudanese general accused the United Arab Emirates of arming the power military group RSF. We're joined now by two guests. Maureen Al-Neil is back with us. She's a Sudanese activist joining us today from Kampala, Uganda. And Mohamed Osman is with us, a Sudan researcher in the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, joining us from Berlin, Germany. Human Rights Watch has just published a report titled Sudan, New Mass Ethnic Killings Pillage in Darfur. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Mohamed, let's begin with you in Berlin. Talk about what you found. So, Amy, really, this research we released is, is part of our, our ongoing investigations in the events in West Darfur, which started in April, just a few days after the start of the conflict in Khartoum. Um, this last piece of research in particular, uh, we've been interviewing survivors who managed to flee to eastern Chad. The overall picture that survivors drew to us is horrific. 
is exactly what you just noted. In the, the spree of killing, house to house, people fleeing. We, we talked to several people who just described streets littered with dead bodies. Some of them managed to be buried in big square in the, in the main camp in the area. Um, but others been left there uh, for days. Um, we looked into the satellite imagery we could analyze that also showed the level of destruction and arson that had been done by the rapid support forces and their allied militias. Um, also, cases of sexual violence continued to be reported from that area. But, of course, the overall impact is the near-complete removal and uprooting of the Masalit community among the other non-Arab groups from, from Guinea and West Darfur to Eastern Chad. And uh, Mohammed, could you talk about the? Uh, even though this has uh, uh, been uh, portrayed largely as an internal uh, civil con- uh, civil conflict, there are regional powers that are funding and arming uh, both sides. Could you talk about the role of the United Arab Emirates, of Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, and these other countries? So I, I completely agree that there has been issue with the framing of the conflict itself, even prior to the to the outbreak of the war in April, when the UN and other actors continuously used the term intercommunal violence, intercommunal conflict, in a way to reduce the participation of government forces. But looking into the situation now, I mean, we have extensive media reporting in the last weeks and months that point clearly to the role of the UAE in particular, in terms of channeling weapons and support to the rapid support forces, uh, largely through Chad, but also through Uganda and Kenya. Um, Darfur, in particular, witnessed um, an increasing use of drones, which indicate that there's some sort of an actor uh, would be able to supply these kind of weapons. Darfur is an under arms embargo um, from the UN since 2004. So the UAE stands as a big suspect in terms of providing these weapons. Meanwhile, Egypt, on the other side, has been at least politically supportive to the Sudanese armed forces, at least historically, but you know, clearly throughout the conflict. Um, so we, we are yet to establish clear evidence on the level of support, but I think there is enough enough news out there to suggest at least some sort of investigation and responsibility and accountability should be addressed towards the UAE and, and Egypt in particular. And what about other regional powers like uh, Kenya and Uganda? So just looking into the regional response to the conflict, which is, has been, you know, unfortunately almost non-existent, the Sudanese armed forces have previously accused Kenya and Ethiopia of siding with the rapid support forces, which has, of course, created an issue around the credibility of the African Union and the EGAD organization to respond to the situation. But I think from our end has been no evidence of, of clear support from these regional countries. But... Clearly to say that Kenya has been hosting equally also some of the commanders and advisors of the rapid support forces. I want to bring Maureen Al Neal, speaking of Uganda, into this conversation, Sudanese activist who's in Kampala right now. Maureen, uh, we've been speaking with you throughout this conflict. Go back to talk about how this began, how civilians are caught in the crossfire. Um, and, you know, what is the government of Sudan and these rapid support forces that are fighting its military? 
So on the morning of April 15th, uh, people in Khartoum and several other cities, we woke up to uh, the shelling. We woke up to the the uh, fighter jets by the Sudanese armed forces. And I think this at the time has uh, been expected uh, that um, the power sharing agreement uh, is really not going to be sustainable. Um, we have uh, at that time lost hope. Uh, in um, uh, a, a transition of power to the civilians um, and having the military in power, but also having two militaries uh, in power inevitably was going to lead to this war. So the Rapid Support Forces, a paramilitary uh, force that has been legitimized by uh, the uh, previous government prior to the revolution of 2019 and has been legitimized by the Sudanese armed forces and was also legitimized actually by the transitional government uh, that included civilians um, uh, between 2019 and the, the military coup that was conducted by the Sudanese armed forces in um, October of 21. Um, and ever since April 15th, uh, the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces uh, have been fighting in the capital. Inhabitable and fighting in other uh, states and regions, including uh, Kurdufan and the five states of Darfur. Uh, recently, the Rapid Support Forces have been making a lot of advances on the ground. They have um, all but taken um, uh, complete control of the five states of uh, Darfur. Um, officially, they have, uh, have one major city, Al Fashir, that they have not taken over. But uh, news that we have from people on the ground is that um, practically they have already also taken over that, that city. And what we've been seeing uh, perhaps in the last 10 days, that uh, the fighter jets, that the violence that is happening of aerial bombardment has increased. And there are reports that um, the uh, Sudanese armed forces have been receiving more support when it comes to uh, the ammunition and the weapons that are being used to strike uh, rapid support forces. And this really increases the concerns for the people that this is not going to be ending soon, that uh, like the army has expected, and it's actually going to escalate more in the coming months. And Maureen, can you talk about um, the sexual violence that women and girls are experiencing and also why you left in June? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there are um, documented uh, uh, incidents of sexual violence in uh, Khartoum and in um, Darfur states. And we also know that the documentation is uh, a major underrepresentation of what is actually happening on the ground. Um, for me, I also left uh, Khartoum for—it became uninhabitable, but also I think a big factor was uh, threats of uh, rape and sexual violence that you just receive daily passing by checkpoints uh, of the RSF. Um, and uh, this is something that we are continuing to see now. Uh, there are also um, incidents of uh, kidnapping and trafficking, but that has been very difficult to document. And I think this is something that we need to keep in mind when talking whether about the fatalities, talking about um, the sexual violence, that um, what we know is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the violations that the people are facing day to day, because it's been very difficult to uh, for um, uh, journalists, for um, even investigating the violations that are happening to um, uh, refugees and people who have left areas of conflict, um, violations and uh, the withholding of their rights as refugees. Um, uh, we've, we've been hearing investigative journalists saying that they're worried that if they publish their reports, actually, that this might um, uh, detrimentally affect their refugees and the internally displaced pe uh, people. Um, so we know for a fact that we don't know enough about the conflict in Sudan.
And Maureen, I'm, I'm wondering, here in the United States, the American people now for decades have been receiving news and information about conflict and war in Sudan. And um, uh, and most people don't understand that there was a period not, not too long ago in the 1960s when Sudan had one of the most vibrant democracies uh, in that section of the world. Uh, and a, a largely secular democracy, it boasted one of the largest communist parties in the Arab world uh, back in the 60s. But then, of course, uh, the United States was very much against uh, those uh, uh, that uh, the governments in that period of time until there were dictatorships that took power. Uh, I'm thinking of Jafar uh, Namiri in 1969 and his coup, and then, of course, the decades under uh, Omar al-Bashir. Can you talk about the role of the United States uh, as uh, conflict has continued to grow, internal conflict in Sudan? Mm -hmm. So whether we're speaking historically, like you said, that uh, the United States was on the wrong side of history when it comes to uh, the history of Sudan, we're also seeing it now. So um, recently, in recent days, the, the Sudanese uh, government has requested that uh, the uh, UN mission um, uh, for the transitional, um, uh, to support the transition, uh, be terminated. And even during the transitional government, uh, the unit terms um, and also supported by the uh, Troika, uh, the U.S. being part of it, was um, uh, supporting uh, the framework uh, agreement, an agreement that a lot of the civil powers and um, also the resistance committees, the, the real mobilizers on the ground and the platform that the people can actually speak through um, to decision makers, uh, were not supportive of the UNITAMS. They were not supportive of the framework agreement. Um, it was obvious that this is not something that will lead to stability. Um, and I think um, it, it, it was the entire world that was shocked when the war broke out in, on April 15th, but it was it was um, something that was expected for, for the Sudanese people, um, although we were uh, hoping for the best, but we were expecting this worst case scenario uh, because the international community uh, was supporting the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces uh, instead of supporting a genuine uh, transition uh, of power to uh, civilians. Finally, uh, Mohammed Osman, uh, what is uh, Human Rights Watch recommending at this point? Who has to be involved here to end this horrific conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think the good start is understanding that doing nothing is not an option. There has been a lot of inaction from the global and regional community to Sudan. I mean, just Marine mentioned a few points that highlight the chronic failure of the regional international community to respond. But I think when it comes to the recommendations that we can lay, just what we noted in our report, is seeing the UN Security Council actually stepping to its responsibility, seeing the members of the Security Council undertaking visit to Eastern Chad, meet with the refugees, listen to their stories, listen to the survivors, um, victims of the atrocities that has happening, you know, expanding the arms embargo to go beyond the effort to all over Sudan, seeing rolling out of targeted sanctions against the key responsible perpetrators, notably within the RSF and SAF equally. Um, and and uh, the accountability front is also a crucial point to see a more response to it. We want to see the Security Council members proactively reaching to the International Criminal Court, to the UN fact-finding mission in Sudan, asking them what do they want and provide them with the political backup and resources. There is a lot to be done, and unfortunately, not much has been happening. Mohamed Osman, we want to thank you very much for being with us, Sudan researcher.
In the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, we'll link to your new report, Sudan, New Mass Ethnic Killings, Pillage in Darfur. And Maureen Al-Neil, Sudanese activist, today speaking to us from Uganda. Coming up, we remember former First Lady Rosalind Carter and her decades-long advocacy for mental health care. Back in 30 seconds. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky Imagine all the people Living for today Imagine there's no countries It isn't hard to do Nothing to kill Trisha Yearwood and Garth Brooks performing a rendition of John Lennon's Imagine at Rosalind Corridor's memorial service yesterday in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden and Jill Biden, Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, joined other current and former leaders to pay tribute to former First Lady Rosalind Carter at her memorial service on Tuesday. All living First Ladies were there. 99-year-old President Jimmy Carter, now in home hospice care since last February, was also in attendance in a wheelchair. Rosalind Carter served as a longtime political advisor and strategist for Jimmy Carter, who went from rural state senator to governor of Georgia in 1970 and president of the United States in 76. As First Lady Rosalind Carter joined White House cabinet meetings, served as an envoy to Latin America, in 1979, Time magazine declared her to be the second most powerful person in the United States. She and Jimmy Carter also worked for years with the charity Habitat for Humanity, building homes for people in need. This is their grandson, Jason Carter, speaking at Tuesday's memorial. And again, a special thank you, Secretary Clinton, Mrs. Bush, Mrs. Obama, Mrs. Trump, and Dr. Biden. Thank you all for coming and acknowledging this remarkable sisterhood that you share with my grandmother. And thank you all for your leadership that you provided for our country and the world. Secretary Clinton and Dr. Biden, we also welcome your lovely husbands. The audience laughed as Presidents Biden and Clinton looked on. Rosalind Carter's son, James Earl Carter III, known as Chip, eulogized his mother at Tuesday's memorial service. My mother was the glue that held our family together through the ups and downs and thicks and thins of our family's politics. As individuals, she believed in us and took care of us. When I was 14, I supported President Johnson for president. And every day I wore a Johnson sticker on my shirt. And periodically I would get beat up and my shirt torn and the buttons pulled off and my sticker always destroyed. 
And I would walk the block during lunch from school down to Carter's Warehouse, and my mother would have a shirt in a drawer, already mended, buttons sewn on, and the LBJ sticker still applied. Years later, she was influential in getting me into rehab for my drug and alcohol addiction. She saved my life. After leaving the White House, Rosalind Carter campaigned to expand U.S. mental health services. This is an excerpt of a video tribute featuring her words. I've worked on mental health issues since my husband was governor of Georgia, which is a very long time. I worked on stigma and tried to overcome stigma because it holds back progress in the field. People don't get help when they need it because of stigma. We have a great opportunity to change things forever for everyone with mental illness. The solutions are truly within our reach. We can overcome stigma and we can make services available to all who need them and offer every individual the chance to create a happy and fulfilling future. We're joined now by the award-winning investigative reporter Aaron Glantz. His new piece for NPR is headlined, Rosalind Carter's Mental Health Advocacy Changed Journalism and Journalists. Aaron's a two-time Peabody Award-winning journalist, Pulitzer Prize finalist, who currently serves as senior editor at The Fuller Project, the global nonprofit newsroom focused on women. Aaron was a Rosalind Carter Fellow for Mental Health Journalism at the Carter Center from 2008 to 9, and used the fellowship to write his book, The War Comes Home, Washington's Battle Against America's Veterans. Aaron, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's so great to have you with us. Um, you know, we featured much of your reporting on Iraq on Democracy Now! We've had you on a number of times. Um, talk about— how that connects to this fellowship you had with Rosalind Carter. And even though the fellowship was named for her, did you actually get to meet her? I did get to meet her. And that was a big surprise. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily expect it when I applied. Uh, you longtime listeners and viewers of Democracy Now! remember that I was in Iraq uh, after the invasion. Uh, I covered the 2004 siege of Fallujah. I covered the Abu Ghraib prison scandal, the attack on Najaf, and a number of other incredibly uh, difficult circumstances uh, where a lot of people died. And then I came home and I started to cover the experiences of American veterans uh, who were returning home to a country that denied them uh, the health care that was promised and the benefits uh, that were promised. You know, basic parts of the social contract that if you got blown up by a roadside bomb uh, that and couldn't work, that you would get disability benefits. Uh, and yet I kept interviewing people who were sleeping in their trucks or on the streets uh, or couldn't get access to promised mental health care. Uh, and I was filing story after story about that, uh, some of it for Democracy Now! Um, and, and I wasn't, I just have to say, like, we weren't really moving the needle. Um, and so in 2008, I applied for this fellowship at the Carter Center, uh, named for uh, Mrs. Carter. And in the application for this fellowship, I had to write about how the work that I was going to do uh, was going to address the issue of stigma, uh, the stigma associated with mental illness, and make an impact. And I recall even when I was filling out uh, this, this form, that it was the first time that anyone had ever asked me, you know, how my work would make a difference. 
And then when I when I got accepted to the program and went to Atlanta, uh, Mrs. Carter attended the entire fellowship training. I came to Atlanta multiple times, and every time I was there, she was there too, uh, listening to us, giving us notes. And I write in the piece uh, that was published this week uh, that that she took me seriously. Uh, which made me take myself more seriously, that when you have the First Lady of the United States putting expectations on you um, that your journalism should matter, you start to think a lot more strategically and intentionally uh, about how you're going to move the needle. Uh, and so, for example, at that time, uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, was maintaining that there was no way to even count the number of veterans who were uh, dying by suicide after returning home from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, in the year after I received the mental health fellowship uh, from the Carter Center, I set to work uh, to use public health records. And so now, uh, you know, now there's this uh, statistic, uh, 22 veterans uh, uh, die by suicide every day, and it's incredibly troubling. Uh, but now that the VA is tracking that, um, you know, they can try to address it. And and so to, to imbue this kind of thinking in every single story I do, uh, which I've now been doing 15 years, is a direct result of the uh, guidance and influence that Mrs. Carter had on me. And hundreds of other journalists have had the same experience. And, and Aaron, she also had an enormous impact on uh, uh, legislation and policy as well in the area of mental health. She she was the she led the president's commission on mental health that eventually was instrumental in passing the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980. And you talk about her work in trying to uh, lobby Congress uh, to uh, provide more uh, assistance from medical insurers to those who needed mental health assistance. A lifelong priority of Mrs. Carter's was the issue of parity uh, in insurance, that the same health benefits that you get if you break your arm or your leg or have cancer, that you should have parity and be able to get those same benefits uh, for um, for any mental health issue that you might face. And that treating mental health and physical health um, on equal footing from an insurance perspective would go a long way to making sure people got the care they need and also uh, go a long way to making sure that people felt comfortable asking for help and seeking help. And this is something that she, she talked about when I was at the Carter Center in 2008 and nine. Uh, it's something that uh, ended up being passed into law during the administration of President Obama. And um, even now, the Carter Center in the last few years has launched a new initiative uh, with journalists to figure out uh, how well that is actually going. Um, so, you know, a lot of people in politics come and go on certain issues. But, uh, you know, Mrs. Carter, um, this was something that she worked on, you know, from her days as first lady of the state of Georgia uh, before her husband was even president, uh, all the way through, you know, until very close to the end of her life. And we have uh, less than a minute, but if you could talk about some of the other fellows that you worked with uh, at the uh, in that in that fellowship and uh, what they were able to accomplish. I mean, I think the first important thing is that there were hundreds of fellows that were inspired by Mrs. Carter, and that has led to a sea change. When Mrs. Carter established this fellowship program in 1996, you would still see uh, stories uh, that said people were insane or crazy, and uh, there was no established beat 
uh, for mental health in journalism. And she's utterly changed that. There's now a whole movement of journalists. And, and, and since she's died, um, you know, I've reached out to a number of people who had this fellowship. And the one that really uh, sticks with me in terms of you know, really showing uh, Mrs. Carter's legacy is I had a chance to talk with Sarith Hawk, who is a Cambodian-American journalist in Fresno, uh, who got uh, the Rosalind Carter Fellowship to explore the long-term uh, psychological impacts of genocide of the Khmer Rouge on her refugee community. And it was only after she got this fellowship in 2002 when Mrs. Sorry, 2022, when Mrs. Carter was already too sick to attend the fellowship in person, that she learned that way back in 1979, that Mrs. Carter uh, had traveled to Thailand and visited Cambodian refugees in camps at a time when this was an active war zone, and then led the campaign to. Uh, bring, allow Cambodian refugees to come to this country. And, and it was we so meaningful five seconds, uh, to both Sarif and to uh, Mrs. Carter's uh, staff that, that they were able to come full circle. And I really think it shows how her virtuous work over the entire course of her we're life. We're going to have to leave it there. Investigative itself. journalist Aaron Glantz remembering Rosalind Carter.